Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I have the pleasure to talk with Susan Diane Utter, LMFT. Susan is super excited to walk the path to authenticity with all people and particularly favors transgender folks. She began this journey in the late 1990s. She is trained in eye movement desensitization and reprocessing and a graduate of the WPATH Gender Education Initiative course, enabling her to work with transgender clients with traumatic events. She is the author of the book, Permission, available on Amazon. In her YouTube channel, Susan offers short messages of hope and inspiration. Today, we talk about her clinical approach of working with transgender individuals. Welcome, Susan. Hello, nice to be here with you. Yeah, thanks for being on. Today, we're going to focus on a topic that you are an expert in, in working (laughs) with trans individuals. Um, This is something that I've been really interested in discussing on the podcast because it's something that really is becoming, there is much more interest in terms of clinicians that focus on this and have specialty in this treatment. Mm -hmm. There is more interest in it. And I think how that started was you know, my first exposure to anything about transgender was even before I was in school. I went to school in the 2000s. So prior to that, I had a very dear friend that came out as transgender and I knew nothing about it, but I wanted to be a support for them. And then as I went through school and got into my master's program, there just wasn't much around about transgender. And so I was watching documentaries on TV and, and reading what I could find and following, you know, looking at other people's information. Anne Vitale is one. She had a lot of information on her website. And I think that, honestly, I think it's kind of true with a, a lot of us that, that the transgender, it grabbed a hold of us because there were people who sincerely were in pain and feeling so overlooked. And as a, you know, we're trained to to have that heart, to have that compassion. And so I think those of us that started all of this, I mean, like I say in the late nineties, there were people in the seventies and eighties that really, really had nothing available to them. But for myself, it's just been around the personal experience first, you know, my dear friend. And then shortly after that, my partner at the time, came out as transgender. So it was really out of a desire to be available for them. Then in school, my traineeship, I chose the Pacific Pride Foundation in Santa Barbara. And then I started getting an education about transgender. And my favorite thing, you know, I think you might agree with this, is it's all about the journey. I have an endless fascination for the journey to authenticity. I love Dr. Seuss, Be Yourself, Everyone Else Has Taken. And having that endless fascination for the journey, you know, for the human journey is really what kind of caught me in its grasp and hasn't let go. (laughs) I mean, so true for, I mean, struggles that everybody is going through, right? In terms of thinking about that journey and accepting that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now what we're seeing, you know, there's always different opinions about whether it's a, is it a mental illness? Is it a lifestyle change is, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, for myself, 
And having done the work that I've done, people do not enter this lightly. They don't just wake up one day and be like, I'm tired of being a dude. I'm going to be a woman now. That is not what happens. And unfortunately, that's a lot of the opinion, public opinion at times about that. You know, we see it in the headlines about athletes who are transgender and they shouldn't be allowed to participate in the sport of their preferred gender. And it's like, if they understood the science behind it, they would realize that by the time a person gets to where they can change their gender marker, they've been on hormone replacement, they've had surgeries, they do not have the same body that they did in the beginning. This is not a man who wants to win, so he's going to participate in women's sports because he's got a better chance, you know? So I, that's one of the disheartening things is those kind of opinions. Right, and I also wonder, I mean, do you think public opinion thinks that these are impulsive decisions as well? There are some that do, yeah. And then I realize by doing the interviews, how early this starts and how, for the most part, it starts very early on. I have a person who says to me that at the age of four, they were going to their mother and saying, I need to go back to the doctor. They put the wrong parts on me. And depending upon how that's received in the family, you know, they're supported with it or they're not. I believe there is more support today. And in the early days, in the early 2000s, my folks were coming in presenting with a lot of depression and anxiety and what we've seen happen is after they are able to fully embrace who they are, their authentic self, some of those diagnoses fall away. They're no longer anxious. They're no longer depressed. And then I think that's, that's like the joy of doing this work. I ask my clients to, if they want to, to send me a picture after we finish our work, maybe a year or two down the line at some point, send me a picture you know, and I've gotten the most beautiful pictures. I even had one person that sent me a short video of them dancing and they wanted me to, to see their, just their, their pure joy, you know, dancing. And then I have another client who sent me a photograph of um, herself in a white lab coat. So I knew that she had reached her, also her career goal. So yeah, it's wonderful. That part of it. So I'm wondering, because you identify yourself as a therapist that works with transgender individuals. So I guess my question is, why is it important to have a therapist who has expertise in this field versus just someone who's transgender, just kind of thinking about seeing any therapist? What are, what are the benefits when, what is the training? How is that different? Yeah. Well, the training now is different than it was when I started. WPATH, a World Professional Association for Transgender Health, the GEI Gender um, Education Initiative, which, which I did take, so I could say that I had taken it. <laughs> so there is much firmer education available now. The reason why it's important for the person to be trained, and not everyone is, because you know, they have a heart for it and they have a client that they want to help because they care but there can be some real damage done. There's a misgendering somebody who's coming for help and continuing to do that. When folks are new, when therapists are new learning this 
how to work this way. It happens a lot. We misgender. Meaning language or what are you meaning with misgender? Language. Yeah. So I would be referring, you know, to refer to someone as, as well as he or him or, or, you know, her or she is misgendering. And it, it is a, there's a thing called a microaggression. And it's what happens is these little tiny little cuts that happen when you're walking down the street and someone gives you a, you know, a look, oh, what is that? You know, kind of a look. Um, so the microaggressions, when you understand about transgender, you know that every day is a microaggression. When I first started the work, I would ask people, what was your experience getting to the office today? What was your experience sitting in the waiting room? And we would start off there. Now I work virtually only. I'm a telehealth therapist and work over the platform only. So it's much better because I get to talk to folks in their houses or in their cars from work on their break or, or wherever. We don't have so much of that so far as getting to the appointment, but still living and walking in the world. There is the microaggressions that happen. And sometimes they're not micro, as we know, especially women, women of color, trans, they have a very high rate of violence against them. And that's really sad, you know, and the other hat that I wear is trauma treatment. I do EMDR trauma treatment. And very often I find that I'm able to use both of those approaches with somebody because there's some traumas that we need to work through. So we do that too. The other piece of it is to understand what you're seeing and to be able to ask the questions like, when did this first start for you? What were your experiences as an early child, young child, early child? (laughs) But anyway, what were your experiences? What toys did you play with? Who did you, who were your friends? Like that, just to get that kind of the beginning. And you'll find, you can trace back the beginnings of the trans when you ask those kinds of questions. So one of the things that insurance companies want to know is how long, you know, did this, has this person felt this way? And so it's really important to be able to tie it back as early as possible. So they do understand this person didn't just six months ago decide. Right. So that actually leads me into my next question of what are kind of the themes of issues that you're working with? So you had mentioned that the microaggressions, kind of the daily experience of someone being trans. So that makes sense, right? And also you validating their experience and kind of acknowledging that this is happening to them on a daily basis. But I guess my question is what other topics come up in therapy that are kind of typical, typical themes you see with somebody transgender? Yeah. You know, depending on where they're at in the process, if I get them early on, teenagers, young teenagers, or even I saw someone as young as 10. So where they're at in their own journey. So it's always interesting how there is a certain pattern. So for example, I meet with the person who's a teenager. Probably what we're going to start out with is the big decision is a haircut, right? When do they make that decision to make that haircut? Or when do they make the decision to grow their hair out, which is closely followed by the closet clearing, getting rid of the clothes that do not fit, do not identify, do not feel comfortable to them, getting clothes that do. The process, we work support around going to get the clothes because in the beginning of a person's transition, they are still, except for some very lucky few with great genes, they're presenting as their biological gender. And so they're going into the wrong department in the store. Where do they go to try on the clothes? How do they pick them out? So we talk about taking a support person and ally with you. 
So those are the things that come up if someone's in the early stages. Later on, we talk about when is it appropriate to bring it into the workplace? When is it time to talk to HR? Will the company support them in their transition? Will they not? How will they? How won't they? They're very big decisions, you know. I think that making an overgeneralization, if any person who's on this journey had their pick, they could do what they wanted to do. They would go someplace where no one knows them. They would have start their hormone and then do all of their surgeries and then go someplace new where no one knows them and now present here I am. But that is not what happens most of the time. And so it's really a challenge in navigating how to step into this role, step into your authenticity while people around you are like, well, I just don't understand. I named you Susan. Why can't I call you Susan? Well, because I'm not Susan. I identify as Sam. I appreciate if you would call me Sam. (laughs) Those are the conversations. They get deeper also if if there's a marriage. There are marriages who successfully navigate the partner transitioning, and there are marriages that don't. Are there children? How are the children involved? And at what age are the children will then kind of uh, give us an idea about how are we going to go about this? How are we going to start unpacking this identity? And so when there's small children involved going from dada to mama, right? So oftentimes families will work about finding, will work about finding another term that's not dada, but not mama, you know, and so they'll have other, other terminologies. One person, um, I just loved it. They were MAPA. (laughs) I thought was adorable. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it is. So I think also what you're saying is what you do is training transgender individuals to then educate other people about how they want to be treated, how they want to be seen in the world, how to reframe the language and educate other people about that right? A lot of educating them on how to educate others. Right. Which my personal view would be that people would do their own research. Like I don't expect my clients to be my culture bearer. I go and I find out the information. It's hard to depend on the trans person who's going through all of this to then be the advocate, to then be the poster person for it. And then people don't realize how their reactions can harm in a workplace, someone who's transitioning and being called ma'am when they don't identify as a man. You know what? I also, maybe I'll rephrase it. So maybe not educating, but basically setting clear expectations of how they want to be treated. Absolutely. Clear expectations. But here's the unfortunate part is that depending upon how much the family understands about the issues, it's going to depend on what the reaction is going to be. By and large, when I have clients that are in their 40s, just the overgeneralization again, but their parents and their older family members will absolutely refuse, absolutely refuse to identify them, to support them, to hold them up in their journey. They're very judgmental. They, you'll say things like, well, I just don't understand. You played with trucks when you were little. Why is this now? That's the ugly side of it. When I have people who are younger in their 20s, in their teens, it's much more likely that the parents are like, okay, we've got something we're dealing with here. And they're seeking out help sooner, which is great. If a person can take the puberty blockers, 
ahead of time and kind of stop some of those changes from happening, their transition later is so much easier because they're not having to go quite so uphill. Got it. The other thing I wanted to ask you is kind of the difference between non-binary and transgender individuals. And is there, sounds like there might be a little bit of overlap too, in terms of someone deciding they're going to be non-binary then moving to transgender. And I just wonder if you could speak to that and your experience with, with that. Yeah. So the non-binary, so it's exciting to me about non-binary. So here, okay. So here's my thing. I say the human behavior is on a continuum and it stretches out into infinity and beyond. So you have gender stuff. You got boy, girl here. And then you start moving out on that line. And then you've got all of this other, all of this other space. And what's normal starts out about this wide. And then as time goes on, it slowly gets a little bit more wider. So first we had LGBT folk, well, LGB, you know, gays and lesbians. Okay. And then you had, I'll speak mostly to, because most of my, my lived experience has been with butch women who transition. And a butch woman is a lesbian who tends to wear masculine clothing, tends to be um, kind of open the doors for their partner and do, you know, those kinds of those kinds of things. So we had gays and lesbians and then some gays and lesbians, even though they were attracted to their same sex, but there was something a little bit different about them. Right. And so it wasn't necessarily that they were attracted to their same sex. It's that their sex was different. Right. So the trans folks came out of that wave, so to speak. Not that they haven't been around forever because everything has been around forever. But with trans folks kind of out there and pushing pushing the boundaries, pushing that, that continuum wider, it left more space in there for folks to be like, huh, well, you know what? I'm not really identifying either way. There's a part of me that's like this and there's a part of me that's like that. And so now they're kind of in the hot seat, so to speak, because transgender is a little more in the news now. It's a little more understood. They've gotten some safety in the their, their protected classification discrimination. So they have a little easier time of it. But then, yeah, the, the it's mostly the kids that I see like under, you know, under 30s that are like, I'm, you know, I don't really identify with either one. And you know what? I'm not going to identify as either one. Now that's blowing people's mind because it's like, oh no, it's been this or that forever. So they're got what, it. What's this middle stuff, you know? And it's got it. So oftentimes there isn't an overlap. It's just they decide to be non-binary and it's rare that someone would then say, I will assign, I have decided that this is my gender of preference. It's, it's often just ends at non-binary and it doesn't move from there. And then there's this play of just taking this little piece of this, taking a little piece of that. There's this really sweet book. I wish I had the title of it, but there's a really sweet book of photographs and it's of teenagers who are like all along the, the range. And so you've got You've got folks that are like, there's this one young, young man, he's probably, I don't know, 15 or so, but anyway, this picture of himself dressed in like the button up shirt and some that, but then you turn the page and it's like, but some days I feel like this and he's threatened his hair and he's wearing a really cute top and a skirt and just, you know, and so I just, I have a lot of respect for their ability and their desire to just be like, eh, you know what, I'm just going to knock out, you know, I'm going to step out of this whole gender thing all together and just be me. And so you'll see people having names that aren't really one or the other, you know? So, yeah. Well, you know, this has educated me 
as well as hopefully the listener. One thing I'm wondering, we were talking a little bit earlier about the importance of seeing a therapist who has specialty and training in this sort of thing. How does someone go about finding that person, that therapist or clinician who, I mean, I'm sure we can make sure that we'll add some resources to the episode, but any kind of tips on how to do that? So I will say something to watch against. And that is you can go into, so for example, I'm on psychology today. You can go on psychology today and you can put in that you're looking for a therapist that works with transgender. Now pull up the list, but use some discernment because there are, there are people who just go down and check the boxes like, oh yeah, well, that's interesting. Well, I wouldn't mind working with that. Yeah, that's okay. I don't, I you know, and so they'll mark the transgender box without any other education about it. Meaning really, therapists who create their profile. Yeah. Right. And they're just saying, oh, I, I would work with someone who's transgender. That's okay. And they'll check the box. Not realizing that there really is a specialty aspect of it so that it's done well. And so that's done safely. And so you don't make these horrible mistakes, like misgendering someone, calling them by their dead name like this. And it can be challenging in the beginning to talk to a person with a a full beard and a head of curly hair and body hair who wants to be called Susan. So the training and the practice of that is very, you'll call that person Susan. When you're not used to working in the population, you're going to mix up. You're going to mix up and call them Sam. And every time you do that, even though they may say that's okay, they're saying that's okay because they're used to it. It hurts. It hurts their heart. And it's one more time where I'm not seeing you. So how does someone discern what a specialist means and how to find a specialist in terms of how they describe their training or? Yeah. So if I was a person calling and trying and finding out, I would look, first of all, when you're marking, making a profile, you can choose two or three specialties. On psychology today. Mm -hmm. And so if someone has marked that as a specialty, they probably have a little more education about it than someone that's not one of their top three specialties. It's just something else. So look for that. The other thing is during the interview, because of course you want to talk to them. And here's the questions that some questions to ask would be, do you write letters for surgeons? Are you comfortable? How many letters have you written for surgeons? How long have you been working with the population? What's your favorite thing about working with this population? What's challenging about working with this population? And maybe the person would want to say me, (laughs) transgender, you know, or anyway, but population works too. So interviewing the person to find out just how do they answer those questions? And the specific training you mentioned earlier, what is that called again? Right. And that's a good, thank you for bringing that up. That's the GEI and the WPATH website carries a list of folks that have gone through a certain level of training with them. Now, my name isn't on there because you have to do like case consultations and things like that in order to get, and I wasn't concerned about doing that. So, but the folks that are on the website have been through the training and had to jump through some extra hoops to get on the webpage. But I think you brought up good questions to ask and, you know, to make sure that an individual is seeing someone who really does have expertise in in the field. And you want it to be a good fit, if at all possible. Yes, that's the goal, right? (laughs) For sure. Someone that they feel comfortable talking with and sharing. So, well, this was very helpful to me and I'm so excited to have you on. This is actually the first interview I've done um, about transgender individuals. And I don't think it's going to be the last because I, I think it's an 
fascinating field and there's so much room for, for growth and supporting people. Um, and so I'm so glad that you've been on and we could talk about this. Yeah near and dear to my heart. (laughs) Right. So let's make sure we'll have for the listener, some good um, resources that you can list for them. And then any parting words for the listener? My parting words would be, if you see a person walking down the street and you're not sure about them, there's something that seems a little like, "Hmm," look at the clothes that they're wearing. And call them according to the clothes. Mm. If someone's wearing a dress that looks like they're not comfortable in the dress, it's kind of fun to be like, you know what? That pink looks really good on you. And just keep walking. You're going to make their day. (laughs) Those are great last words. Well, I appreciate it so much. All right. Well, thanks for being on. Thank you for having me. Take care. This has been Mind Stories. With remote appointments in California and nine offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.